judgment that decorates the wall behind the high altar of the Sistine Chapel is a painting of Jonah and a fish. Jonah is one of seven Old Testament prophets that encircle the ceiling. And his image is considerably larger than all the rest. Michelangelo painted him bigger than all the other prophets and gave him the place of prominence in the chapel for good reason. Now, when the scribes and Pharisees demanded a sign from Jesus, he said this, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. And yet no sign shall be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah's miraculous emergence from the sea three days after being thrown overboard, was a prophetic picture of Jesus coming forth from the grave after three days in the tomb. And as Jonah's journey to Nineveh pointed to the resurrection of Christ, so, I hope, can the last leg of Paul's journey to Rome after his shipwreck point to the resurrection for us this morning. It was long Paul's goal to get to Rome. And Jesus promised he would get there. The book of Acts records his missionary journeys and ends with Paul as a prisoner in Rome. It leaves us thinking his ministry ended there. And history does tell us that Paul was martyred in Rome. But, like those who thought Jesus' life was over when he was placed in the tomb and were surprised by what happened next, so you might be surprised to discover that while Luke does close the official record of Paul's ministry in Rome, evidence indicates that it did not end there. And might I point out, that due to the resurrection of Christ, neither does our life end here. Let's keep that in mind as we join Paul on the last leg of his journey to Rome, as we draw to a close a study in the book of Acts, a book we've been studying for months together. We're in Acts 28. And at the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. And after we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we sailed around and arrived at Rigium. And a day later, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus, we came to Rome. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three ends to meet us. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. And when we entered Rome, 
Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. After three months stranded on the island of Malta, they were able to resume their journey to Rome on another grain ship from Alexandria, one with the sons of Zeus, Castor and Pollux, the Gemini twins, as figurehead. The fact that it had wintered on the island demonstrates how impossible sea travel was during the winter months. They were only three or four days sailing distance from their destination and had to spend three months on Malta. When they finally left, they sailed some 80 miles from Malta to Syracuse, a port on Sicily, the big island off the boot of Italy. They spent three days there waiting for favorable winds to sail through the Strait of Messina, a three-mile-wide channel between Italy and Sicily. When the winds were right, they slipped through the channel, stopping at Rigium for a day, and then sailed 180 miles up the coast to Puteoli, the closest deep-water harbor to Rome, which is near the site of Naples today. From there, they would have to travel some 150 miles overland to Rome. There was a seven-day delay in Puteoli, during which time Paul was allowed to look up some believers to stay with, and which also allowed word to travel to Rome that Paul was on his way, giving some of the brethren there time to head down the Appian Way to meet him. Some made it 33 miles to three inns, and others made it 43 miles to the market of Appius. Paul was very much encouraged by these Christians who walked many miles to meet him. You know, he was no doubt very apprehensive as he approached Rome. He had longed to come. He had planned to come, but not as a prisoner under Roman guard. Would the Christians there even associate with him under such, such circumstances? He had to wonder. But when he found they cared enough to travel three or four days to meet him, he thanked God for them and, and took courage. He was now ready to march into Rome with his head held high. He was on a mission to the capital of the world. When he got there, he wasn't thrown in prison like a common prisoner. He wasn't a condemned man. He was a Roman citizen under appeal to Caesar. So he was given the liberty of staying in his own rented quarters, albeit chained to a Roman guard. Again, this was not as he had pictured it. But he was there, in Rome. And he had enough freedom to minister to those who had come to him and to the Roman guards who had pulled duty chained to him. Well, let's see what he did first as a missionary in Rome. Who did he first attempt to reach for Christ? And it happened that after three days, he called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they had come together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. When the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar not that I had any accusation against my nation, 
For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. They said to him, We've neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. And when they had set a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Now, if you stop and think about this for a moment, I think you'll Understand, this is pretty amazing. You know, Jewish zealots had persecuted Paul for 30 years. And yet there's no bitterness on his part. He still wanted to lead them to faith in Christ. And he always reached out to them first, even in Rome. So the first people he contacted after getting settled in were the leading men of the Jews. He wanted them to know who he was and why he was there. He wanted, them to, make, he wanted to make sure that they knew he had nothing against the Jewish people or the Jews or their customs. Still, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem had delivered him as a prisoner into the hand of Romans. Well, actually... The Romans had snatched him out of their murderous hands, but he doesn't spell that out. He does make it clear, however, that the Romans had found no ground for a death sentence and would have released him if the Jews hadn't objected. So he'd been forced to appeal to Caesar for his own safety. That's why he was in Rome. Not to bring accusation against the Jews, but to defend himself. He had nothing against the Jews or the Jewish faith. In fact, he was wearing the chain they saw for the sake of the hope of Israel. And he wanted to share that hope with them. Well, they said they had heard nothing about him and had received no official word from Jerusalem warning them about him. So they were willing to listen. Besides, they really did want to hear his views concerning this sect, Christianity. They'd heard bad things about it. It was spoken against everywhere. Almost like today. So a date was set. And they came in large numbers. And Paul spent the entire day testifying to them about the true nature of the kingdom of God. And attempting to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. Well, let's see how they responded. And some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving. After Paul had spoken one parting word, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, 
and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I should heal them. Let it be known to you, therefore, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. And when he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. Some were being persuaded, but others would not believe. It doesn't say they couldn't, but they wouldn't. They did not want to believe. They didn't want to change. And those who wouldn't put pressure on those who were being persuaded, and they caved. They all began leaving, arguing among themselves. Paul wasn't going to let them get away without a final word of warning. So he quoted to them from Isaiah 6, the same passage Jesus had quoted to the unbelieving Jews in Galilee and John had used to explain unbelief in Judea. The passage made it clear that those who continually refuse to believe who will not understand, will not perceive, who close their eyes and plug their ears, will finally, eventually, find themselves unable to believe. Their hearts will become dull, hard, impenetrable. Being therefore unable to repent, they will be unable to find healing from the Lord. The refusal to believe would condemn them. They didn't have honest questions and merely need more teaching. They didn't want to believe. They wouldn't even listen. Since they wouldn't listen, Paul once again turned his attention to the Gentiles and made it clear to the Jews that because of their hardness of heart, the salvation of God was being sent to others. Paul's ministry was not over because they wouldn't listen, nor because of his circumstances. In fact, in Rome, it was given a new beginning. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. Acts leaves us with Paul preaching and teaching unhindered in Rome for two full years. Don't you love the fact that the final word of the book of Acts is unhindered. Nothing can stop the spread of the gospel. In spite of the fact that his own people rejected his ministry, 
and he was chained to a Roman guard and confined to his quarters, Paul was able to preach and teach all who would come to him with all openness, unhindered. And those two years were very productive years for Paul. Not only was he able to build up the church in Rome and convert many of the guards and members of Caesar's own household, but during that time he was able to write what we know as the prison epistles. Our New Testament books of Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. What happened at the end of those two years, Luke doesn't tell us. We have no authoritative word, but we can try to piece things together. Apparently, Paul was released after the two years. There's no record of the Jews ever showing up in Rome to press charges. They were probably unwilling to come before Caesar with such trivial charges. So it appears that Paul was released and able to resume his travels, during which time he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus, letters that contain notations of events that can't be harmonized with Paul's ministry as recorded for us in Acts. Tradition tells us he revisited the churches of Asia Minor and Europe and even made it to Spain, as he had hoped to do. But was then arrested again. After Nero had gone on a rampage and was imprisoned in Rome a second time. And while in prison, awaiting execution, Paul wrote 2 Timothy, his final recorded letter. Tradition then adds that he and Peter were tried together in Rome and condemned to death by Nero's court in 68 A.D. Peter was crucified upside down at his request. And Paul, because he was a Roman citizen and couldn't be put through the agonies of crucifixion, was beheaded for his faith in Christ. Paul may have died in Rome, but his ministry and his life didn't end there, and he knew it wouldn't. The message he proclaimed and the life he lived gave evidence to the fact that he knew he would live again. His life wouldn't end here. And neither will ours. If you find that hard to believe, listen again to what Paul had to say to those who had their doubts in Corinth. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been risen from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. 
Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we witness against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ have been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Paul and the other apostles faced death with absolute confidence that they would live again. And they did so because they knew without a shadow of doubt Jesus had risen from the dead. And they knew that His resurrection was just the first of many resurrections to come. Theirs and ours. Amen? Amen. Well, let's stand and celebrate that fact together this Easter.